This morning, I want to take half a step out of the series that Colin just finished. Colin, as you remember, has been going through four major, central, crucial truths for the church's identity. Scripture, how does God make himself known? Justification, what does God do with our guilt? Sanctification, what does he actually do with us? And glorification, for what is he saving us? What will he do with our world? Colin has wrapped up that series, and this morning I want to take half a step out, and I want to consider several of those things together, and I want to do it out of Romans 8. Uh, One thing that I want to draw on, something that Colin said last week that I think is crucial for us, he had the quote from C.S. Lewis, and he talked about glorification and creation remade and all things set right and our resurrection after the pattern of Jesus' resurrection. All of that not being where the story of redemption ends, but where it begins. That is a crucial truth for us, and I want us to think about that this morning, and then I want us to work backwards from that a little bit. But primarily because I want us to think about our redemption under the heading of purpose. Leslie Newbegin, the brilliant missionary and scholar spends quite a bit of time in his work, Foolishness to the Greeks, explaining that modern man has obsessed himself with the questions of how, of cause and effect, and to assume that we understand and exhaust a topic, we exhaust nature, we exhaust science or technology, when we can answer for ourselves What cause produced this effect? How does this work? He does a brilliant job of pointing out how deficient this is. That for centuries, mankind has conceived rightly of understanding things more fully, not at the neglect of answering the question how, but more importantly, answering the question why. Answering questions of purpose. Why is this the way that it is? Why does this exist? Why would God do X? We see this in our own lives, in our own society. Technology and the study of nature and even theology can be often consumed with questions of how, not stopping long enough to ask more important questions of why. I will give you an example, and it's not to demean or belittle this debate. But the modern American church is obsessed with a creation and evolution debate. That question centers on how. How did things come into being? How did the world come to its current form? We rarely debate or consume ourselves with questions of why. I think this is true for us even as Reformed Christians, not necessarily in our Reformed heritage, our Calvinistic and Reformed heritage, our heritage that we inherited from the Westminster Divines, has always been concerned with questions of why. Why does God act toward us in grace? Why does redemption take place? Why do we need it? Even the first question of the Shorter Catechism starts off this way. Not how does man exist, not how does man live. What is mankind's chief end? What is the purpose of humanity? 
I think this is where we should spend our time as we consider redemption. And so that's what I hope to do this morning. And I'll give it to you in this image. Often when I sit down with couples for premarital counseling, when we're talking about weddings, I try to explain to them on the front end, you are embarking on several months worth of stress. You're going to fight with each other. You're going to fight with your family. You're going to offend some of your friends. You're going to offend aunts and uncles you didn't know you had. And you are going to stress and obsess about the plans and the flowers and the seating arrangements and the music and the dresses and the invitations. Those are all the hows of the wedding. You can screw up a lot of those things and not ruin the why. Many of you know that Richie Sullivan and Aaron Kukolo are engaged. Congratulations. So take this illustration as my premarital advice to you directly in the middle of a sermon to put you on the spot. But Richie, you can screw up all of those things and still end up married. And I tell that to brides and grooms often. A lot of this can go wheels off, and at the end of the day, you will be married. And that is the most important piece. Because as pastors, we stand up at the beginning of a wedding and we say, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today because you traveled and got dressed up and came to the church. No. That's how you came here. That's not why you came here. We say, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... We are gathered here today in order to see this man and this woman joined for a life together. That is the way the story of our redemption unfolds in Scripture. There are plenty of answers to questions of how. God explains to us how he is redeeming us often. But I think we spend too little time considering questions of why. Why? Is God redeeming us? And so if you turn to page 11 in your bulletin, I have an outline that really answers or is aimed at answering two questions. The first three questions on your outline are really all held under this first question, for what are we being redeemed? What is the reason behind our redemption? What's the purpose for which God is redeeming us? And then secondly, I want to consider why does God redeem us in the order that he does? I don't mean why does he redeem someone ahead of someone else. I mean, why does he justify us before he sanctifies us? And why does he justify, adopt, and sanctify us before we're glorified? So these are the questions of purpose I want to answer today. These are what I want to consider as we go through Romans 8 together. But I thought I would tell you on the front end while you were seated, with all of that buildup, these are the things you should look for. You should look for the purpose of our redemption. You should look for glimpses of why it falls out in the order that it does. Young Christians, as I read through the passage in a moment, as I preach through some of the text, here's what I want you to consider And if you still draw during the sermon, these would be two perfect things to draw. You could even draw them like a comic book. You could draw one panel to answer the first question and one panel next to it to answer the second. What are the things in the world and what are the things in you that need to be made right? 
what things need God's power and grace to change and make right. As an example, I'll tell you, my youngest son Ford is at home with Kara this morning because he's sick. We've had strep going through our house this week for the third time this year, which is very fun. And when Walker and Sophie June had it, as they were getting ready to pass it on to their younger brother, very kindly, he turned to us and said, why did God make germs? And we talked about the curse. What are the things that the Jesus Storybook Bible calls our sickness, sadness, and loneliness under the curse? What are the things that God needs to make right? And then the second piece I want you to answer, or the second panel that I want you to draw if you are an artist, what will the world look like? What will it be like to live in a world that doesn't have those things anymore? What will we be like when our sin and our brokenness and our sickness, sadness, and loneliness are done away with and overturned? This is the good news of our redemption and of Jesus' salvation for us as Paul preached it to the Romans in his letter. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. Picking up in the middle of Paul's argument, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Would you join me as we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning for your worship, to rehearse your goodness to us, to declare 
praise to you because of the things that you have accomplished for us in the past. We also thank you for saving us in hope, for giving us great hope of the, for the day when the curse will be no longer, when all of the sad and broken pieces of our world and of ourselves will come untrue. We thank you for your great grace to us. We confess to you that it's more than we consider. It's more than we can see. It's more than we could ever imagine. But we give you thanks that it's all that you intend for us. So this morning, would you help us to believe more deeply and to hope more eagerly in the resurrection that awaits us in a world glorified by your grace? We ask all of these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Amen. If you have your Bible open, you could leave your Bible open and you could also leave your bulletin open to that last page, page 11. And I'll try to move through these first three questions quickly, not because I'm in a hurry but because they are all meant to hang together, they're all meant to reinforce the same thing for us. Paul is repetitive through the passage, but it's often a repetition that we miss, and so I want to highlight it for you. Up to this point in the book of Romans, as many of you are familiar, Paul has gone to great lengths to explain how we became guilty And he went to great lengths to explain how we are not justified. And then he went to even greater lengths to explain how we are, in fact, justified, declared righteous and accepted and forgiven and seen with all of Jesus' goodness. And in this section of the book, in this section of his letter, as he writes with great pastoral concern for the Roman Christians... He's moved into not just how, but he's moved into answering for the last several chapters questions of why. But why would God justify you? Having been justified, then let us enjoy our peace with God, he starts off in chapter 5. Having been justified, here's what it looks like to live in righteousness. Here's why God has saved you. Here's what the struggle will look like in your sanctification in chapter 7. Here's your great assurance in chapter 8. And when he gets to this passage, he's explaining to them a small glimpse of why God set about this great plan of redemption this way in the first place. And so the first question I've given you, in what hope and for what purpose, twice in the passage in verses 24 and 28, he gives you a small peek that we were not saved only to be forgiven. And we weren't saved only to be sanctified and made a little better. We've been saved for glory. That's the way he starts off the passage in verse 18. All of this is headed toward the glory that God has planned for his people and his creation from the beginning of time. And in verses 24 and 28, he reminds you, you have been saved with this hope. Not a short-sighted hope, not a short-term hope, a permanent and lasting hope of glory 
And then he moves through the passage in another cycle that holds out hope to us, but in a more particular way. I've given you those next two questions. Who groans against the curse and who actually does the hoping in the passage? Not so much what is our hope, not so much what does groaning look like. Those aren't my questions for you this morning. I want us to consider who actually does this as Paul preaches to the Romans and to us. Who hates the curse inside and around us enough to groan, to grit their teeth, and to let out pained sighs of anguish? And in the midst of that groaning over the curse, who actively hopes and eagerly waits for something much better? All of the cause for our groaning turned inside out and undone. I've given you passages, or I've given you verses there, rather. I won't walk you through all of them, but I will tell you this. Those two questions can be answered by the three same parties. Who groans over the curse and who hopes for the curse to be undone actively and eagerly? Through the passage, there are three parties who do both of these things. It is God's creation and God's people. And finally, it's God himself. As much as you might, hope, you might hate the curse and you might hope for something better, you can know that you're not alone. The entire creation around you, animate and inanimate, groans in the pains of childbirth, Paul says, longs and waits eagerly for our revelation in the resurrection. But he moves in this sort of ascending scale. In verses 22, 23, and 26... I want to give it to you in those orders, or in that order, and I want to point out to you the ascension of groaning, the, the growing scale of the groaning, because we tend to read the Spirit's groaning as some mystical help praying, and I think that it is that, but we shouldn't divorce that verse, that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We shouldn't take that verse and divorce it from the context and the argument that Paul is building. In verses 22 and 23 and 26, he moves from the whole creation groaning together. And then he moves to us groaning. Not just creation in general, but God's already and not yet redeemed people who have the first fruits, the first deposit of his Holy Spirit. We groan more because we've been given a taste of the fact that there is something better beyond the curse. But as he moves through the passage, the groaning doesn't end with us and the hoping doesn't end with us. The Holy Spirit groans more deeply than we can. As much as you might see the futility of the curse, the brokenness of our world, either in injustice, in disease, in death, in cruelty, in personal sin in addiction, in any number of forms. The whole creation sees those things, maybe not perfectly, but they see many of them as broken, and they do groan over them. 
But we groan more deeply because we have a better sense by the Spirit's enabling of what should be. We know why the curse is, and we know where it's headed, and that makes us all the more impatient to see it undone. But even we can't groan and hope as deeply as we should. God himself groans over the curse, and God himself hopes. Again, biblical hope, not wishful hope. Not the way that we normally say things like, I hope I remember to get up in the morning. That eager longing for something that we are confident is on its way. God himself hopes for the fullness of redemption and the curse finally put away. The picture that we read in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 25, as much as you might hear that passage and hear justice finally rendered in an unjust world and redemption breaking in like a wedding banquet with rich meat full of marrow and well-aged wine, a beautiful picture of what redemption actually is, As much as you might hear that and lament the fact that it's not yet, what Paul is telling us in Romans 8 is that God himself longs more deeply and more fully and more confidently than we do for all of that to finally be true, and he is the one actively working it out. I didn't go into all of this with Ford earlier in the week when he asked why God made germs. Thankfully for him, probably. But look at the active agent in both the cursing and the purposeful hoping in verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It was subjected. Someone else subjected it. Because of him who subjected it. In the context of the passage, this is not Adam... As much as you might want to make it the devil, this is not Satan subjecting the world to futility. This is God himself cursing his creation because of Adam and Eve's sin, subjecting all of creation, not just mankind, to this kind of futility, but not permanently, not hastily, not accidentally, God subjected the entire creation to this kind of futility in hope. He did it always looking ahead for a creation that is finally and fully redeemed. This is the purpose for which we have been and are being redeemed As much as we might groan, as much as the creation might groan, God himself groans more deeply. And as much as the creation might eagerly wait and hope for our redemption and resurrection and the day when it is finally set free from all of this futility, as much as we might long for that ourselves, God himself hopes for the final redemption of all creation. And so with that, I want to consider the last question in your bulletin. Why does God redeem us in this order? And again, I don't mean why does he 
redeem Sue and then Dan later. I mean, why does he justify us before he throws us into sanctification, more of his grace, but often uncomfortable? And why does he sanctify us before we reach glorification and he remakes the world and does away with death? I can think of several reasons, and, and Paul has teased them out for us in Romans. It's not the main thrust of his book, but it's a crucial hinge for us to understand why our redemption works a certain way. For what purpose would God put us in a redemption that's progressive like this? Let me say on the front end, I'm trying to tie these things together for us because I don't want us to think about our redemption in too fragmented a way. It's not that God justifies us and then also happens to sanctify us, and then he's feeling especially benevolent, so he glorifies us. It's not that God justifies us and sanctifies us, and our redemption is something to primarily be experienced and lived in this life, and then glorification is some kind of appendix, some kind of epilogue. It's the bonus round in the wheel of fortune that is human history. No, all of these things are God's perfect purposeful, joyful plan of redemption for us and his entire creation so that we can live in his glorified world with him face to face without death, without sickness, without pain, without fear, and without our own sin. And that's what I wanted to tease out of what I thought was Colin's best and most crucial point for us last week. That all of this in Scripture, all of the history, all of the Israelite kings, all of the prophets, all of the stories in the Gospels, the crucifixion and resurrection themselves as the hinge of history, but not the goal of history, the life of the church over the centuries, all of these things will one day just be backstory. It's not that glorification is epilogue, it's that redemptive history is preface. The story that you and I are meant to inhabit in all of eternity, the story that God has intended for us as his people and his creation all along is actually the story of living redeemed finally and perfectly in glory in his presence. Him enjoying us and us enjoying him face to face, away from the curse, not just negatively, but in a creation that flourishes That's the goodness that God is holding out to us in redemption. So why does he do it this way? If that's the purpose of our redemption, why would he put us through the paces, and why would the paces fall out in this order? We've seen it, and I'm not going to read all of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. But if you follow his argument and you follow his questions and you follow the angst that he feels personally and the hope that he clings to and the assurance he has to draw on and proclaim to the Romans, it looks like this. If God glorified his creation before he sanctified us, that would be utterly miserable for us. What if God removed death and disease and he puts you in it as a sinner? What if all of creation blossomed around you and you were still a depraved mess? 
would be awful. There would be no joy or hope in that. We would walk around on pins and needles hoping not to sully his creation, hoping not to stain and smudge it. And actually, we wouldn't be worthy of it. Let me be clear, we're never worthy of it in ourselves, but he is making us in our sanctification, as Paul said at the end of the passage I read. He is making us like his son. We will live in his redeemed creation as Jesus himself, perfectly conformed to his image. Glorification comes to us after our sanctification even though our sanctification is never perfect in this life, even though what is begun in sanctification is perfected and completed in glorification, it comes to us after that so that our tastes and our affections are trained to appreciate the goodness of glorification. If he took all of us now, as much as you think you long for glorification, this is true. If he put you in a glorified creation now, you wouldn't love it deeply enough. In fact, you would long for some of your sins to follow you in. You would long to keep some of your wrong affections. He actually trains us in the fight of sanctification to love and depend on him the way that we will love and depend on him in fullness and glory. And he trains us to hate and lament our sin and truly long for the glory that's coming so that we will truly love it when it's here. I've asked this question before in sermons. It would be akin to our life now if God justified and forgave us but didn't give us the grace of sanctification. As much as we might think that sanctification is difficult and arduous at times, unpleasant at times, it's painful to fight against our sin It's painful to wrestle with doubt. I don't want to take that away. But if his grace for us was just forgiveness and never change, that would be a cruel gospel. If he said to the addict, I will always forgive you, but you will always be a prisoner, that would be a miserable forgiveness. If he said to the habitually cruel I will always love you, but you will never actually love anyone else. That would be a cruelty in itself. But if God didn't give us these things in this order, if we struggled in sanctification trying to work our way towards forgiveness and justification to find out whether or not we had the golden ticket to go into glory. That would be arduous and miserable as well. And Paul returns to that theme over and over in Romans 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. That we cannot be separated from the love of God. He's given it to us and promised us the fullness on the front end. You're not working your way towards being loved. You are loved, and now this loving God is changing you, getting you ready for the world where you will love him face to face. This is the beauty of God's gospel. It's not the only beauty. This is a significant and crucial beauty for us to appreciate and love in the gospel. 
that God has saved us for more than just forgiveness, and He saved us for more than just the wrestling and war of our sanctification. He has saved us for glory, to spend eternity in His presence, to treat all of this as backstory. One day, if you were to look at the narrative of redemption, there will come a day when you look at all of the pain that you encounter now, And you'll see it as forward, preface to the narrative of your life. And as much as you hate your sufferings now, the grief of losing loved ones, the grief of pain that you inflict, all of these sufferings won't be worth comparing, Paul says, with the glory that is revealed to you. And they'll just fade away in the background. They will just serve as a foundation on which to stand and praise God all the more as we did early in our service as we sang to our great God, Alleluia. But He has perfect and full redemption held out to you on the front end in glory, promised for you, rather, I'm sorry, at the back end, at the end of history as we know it, And on the front end, he has forgiveness and full acceptance and wearing the righteousness and the status of Christ himself so that you don't spend your whole time hoping to get it right in the wishful sense. Wishing and trying and struggling, never sure if you're going to get it right enough to enjoy any of it. I'll close with this. I used the wedding analogy on the front end in my premarital counsel to couples. Richie was kind enough to let me put him on the spot. I tell couples not to worry about all the hows of their wedding ceremony, but to focus on the why. But that analogy is broken for our redemption because couples can screw up invitations and seating arrangements and bridesmaids' dresses. Let's be honest, that one gets screwed up often. And tuxes, all of those things can be ruined. The caterer cannot come through, and it doesn't derail the purpose. They will still be married. That much of the analogy is true. But the analogy breaks down in God is not going to screw up any of those things in your redemption. God has not screwed up inviting you. As much as you might think that He has made a mistake by calling a sinner like you for a glory like His, He hasn't. As much as you might think your sanctification is not going according to plan and you're making a mess of it and you're going to derail the whole thing, God is not making mistakes in your sanctification. The work of His Spirit is perfect. You're not perfect yet, but His Spirit's work is. What he's doing is moving you perfectly, sometimes painfully and sometimes joyfully, to this. And this is where the analogy holds true. The last day, the wedding that we all look forward to, where we come down, as Colin preached last week out of Revelation 21 and 22, come down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her bridegroom.
after all of this, after everything feels like it's gone off the rails often, we will finally come to the wedding and we have been saved for this purpose. Essentially, God the Father will look at us and look at His Son and say, Dearly loved church, I have gathered you today from all of human history, from every tribe and tongue and nation in order to finally see you join to my Son and conform to him, His image once and for all to glorify and enjoy us forever. This is the beauty of the Gospel. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your magnificent grace to us. Not just that it's well thought out in a mechanical way, but it is beautifully crafted. You have engaged us and human history. You have drawn us to Yourself and enacted Your plan of redemption perfectly and sovereignly and wisely. Not only accurately or precisely, but with beauty, with perfect beauty for us to enjoy now and cling to in hope. Because one day we will be finally conformed to the image of your Son and we will enjoy your presence face to face. Father, in the midst of a world that is not right, as people who are not yet right, we eagerly long for that day. We groan within ourselves and we groan with the help of your Spirit. But we don't groan wastefully. You do not groan haphazardly or wishfully. We all groan together in sure and confident hope. Confident that your redemption is chasing us down through history and will catch us and embrace us. Oh, Father, would you help us to believe that more deeply and more firmly? Would you help us to hope more eagerly? Help us to love you and the Son and the Spirit and to love each other more faithfully. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.